my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome back to another episode of Big Money Energy, where we talk to super successful people and self-made people to find out exactly how they did it, how they went from nothing to something. Today, I'm insanely excited to talk to one of the most impressive and successful entrepreneurs in the world. And it's funny, when we started this podcast and we were talking to iHeart uh, and we were listing out people that you know I wanted to talk to, the guy in front of me was on that list, but I never thought that I would actually be able to convince him to slow down for a split second and actually talk. But here we are and we're in the room. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, a father. Uh, even better, he's a New Yorker. He started and sold four companies with many more in the works, one of them being diapers.com, which she sold for just under $550 million, and then jet.com, which she sold for $3.3 billion. And those, that's real money. That's not crypto. That's like US dollars. He also recently started a venture fund with a very, very small athlete. This guy, some people know him, named A-Rod. And if that wasn't enough, he beat Jerry Rice in the 40-yard dash, which is insane. Anyway, I'm super excited to discuss how he makes it all happen. 
the all amazing man in front of me, Mr. Mark Lord. This is one of my favorites. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode. Before I get into everything else, uh, you're a New Yorker. You love New York. This is your spot. Right now, we're in Tribeca, and you quarantined through here. But you're from Staten Island, yeah? Yep. Grew up in Staten Island until I was 10 years old, fifth grade, and then moved to New Jersey. So talk to me before we get to the companies and, and everything else I want to go through about those kind of formative years in Staten Island uh, and how you think that made an impact on your life today. Like, did, do you think it did at all? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think it definitely did. It's the first four years of my life, we lived above my uh, grandparents, you know, part of their house, like in the top floor. Yeah. And then from four to 10, lived in a multifamily kind of home. And it was very modest growing up. We lived in a uh, predominantly Italian, Irish, Catholic neighborhood. I didn't even know what a Protestant was until I was moved to New Jersey. So I was at least in sixth grade. When you I thought knew. everyone was pretty Italian. I thought, yeah, I just thought this, this everyone's Catholic. Are. No, everyone's yeah. Catholic. I don't know about, you know, Italian and Irish, but yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything else. It was incredibly uh, undiverse. It wasn't diverse at all. And, you know, I had a thick Staten Island accent. And then we moved to New Jersey and was thrown in this, like, small 34 kids in a class, uh, super diverse, you know, like, you know, maybe there was one other Catholic, you know, in the entire yeah. class. And it was every nationality. And they made fun of my accent and I was this like, just assumed to be dumb because I had this like thick, you know, Staten Island accent and I was a jock and just, you know, it was a very interesting juxtaposition to go from that to where I was. And I, you're kind of forced in a small school, especially diverse, to be sort of friends with everyone. And it's not typical, I think, to grow up and go to a school where you're friends with people you never would have been friends with if you were in a bigger school and just found your crowd. Like if there was a whole crowd of like Italians, Catholic Italians there, I probably would have gravitated toward that. But no, I was like the only one. So you're friends with everyone. My two best friends are, are, you know, Indian American to this day, you know? And I think that really helped shape me a lot in terms of like empathy and values and, how to understand people, different viewpoints, the benefits of diversity, appreciating people for who they are as opposed to like what they look like or where they come from and things like it was a really cool experience. I didn't really appreciate it until many years later, but, um, you know, just it's part of your, you know, becomes part of your DNA after a while. I was not into school at all. I told my parents like the school doesn't give homework. And they did, and I never did it, and I didn't do well. But I did have, like, just a natural gift for math. Yeah. So that kind of carried me. I really haven't completed any fiction books. I haven't completed any fiction books yet in my life. Got it. So I wasn't ever into books growing up in grammar school and high school, and then just kind of carried on, you know. I start reading. I've tried. I get through, like, the first few pages. Yeah. And I just start thinking. And then I close the book, and I just spend time thinking. I can't. I can't get through more than a few pages. Um, so I always feel like reading takes time away from thinking and I'm a thinker. I like to think. Yeah. I don't know how people actually read because it's like you're committing to somebody else's words and I don't know how you think and invent at the same time you're reading. Interesting. So I just never read. Do you get bored easily? I do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I definitely get bored. Yeah. I get what's funny. I get bored unless I'm 
focused on a specific vision, you know, like there's something, and then I can be like, I can go 24 seven and be laser focused, but it sure. has to be toward a very specific goal that I'm like focused on. Otherwise, yeah, no, like I don't do TV, like stuff like that. It's just tough. Got it. No TV, no books. Yeah. It's just thinking. Tough. Thinking. That's, That's why it. you have that crazy terrace upstairs. Thinking you just go inventing. up there and you can think and invent. <laughs> God, that's, that's awesome. Um, that's, I, dude, I wish I knew to say that to my parents. Like, listen, <laughs> you guys, the books and the, the stuff is not for me. I just, I need more time to think. Yeah. Did you know early on that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and not work for other people? Because you, you, when you graduated school, you went into banking, you got a job because that's what you thought you were supposed to do. No, I had no choice really. So I did when I was a kid. So four years old. Yeah. Um, grandma used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother and used to ask me, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? She used mm -hmm. to always just say this to me and I always said, I want to be a farmer. Yeah. No, you don't want to be a farmer, doctor, lawyer. No, no, I want to be a farmer. Why do you want to be a farmer? Uh, because you grow stuff from nothing. Yeah. Uh, I just loved as a little, little kid, this idea that from a seed grew something and which is basically entrepreneurship. And throughout my entire childhood, I did every, entrepreneurial business you can think of, you know, mowing lawns, recycling, you know, uh, newspapers, um, lemonade stand, baseball cards, like anything to sort of make a buck and be entrepreneurial. But when I graduated college in 93, like had no money, didn't know anything about startups or that didn't really, wasn't really a thing in 93. I'd like stocks. I'd followed stocks as a kid and was interested in it. So I was like, okay, I'll go work for a bank. It didn't occur to me that it was even an option to be an entrepreneur or something. So I went into banking and like each year in banking, I started getting more and more anxious. Like, don't like the culture. It's all about it's mercenary, as I call it, you know, just all about making a buck. The values weren't great. And I was more mission oriented as like an entrepreneur as a kid. Like, what's the mission? Like, what are we going to go out and, and how are we going to change the world? And it never, it just felt wrong. And every year I was doing better and better and better in banking and probably about six and a half years into banking. I was chief risk officer doing really well, making a half a million bucks a year. I just had a kid and I'm like, it's now or never. Like I need to like go do this and be an entrepreneur. So I just went in my boss's office and quit and just said, I'm, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And he laughed at me and said, well, you don't just like walk in and just say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like what's the business? Yeah. I said, I, I don't know yet. I just know I can't figure this out when I'm working 80, 80 hours a week for you. I need to like quit, focus, put together a think. business plan, raise money, think and and so he's like, you're crazy. And I'm like, maybe. He's like, well, can I be your first investor? Because I just yeah. have a feeling you're going to make this work. And so he put 50 grand in and that was like the start of, start of it. And what was that company? That was called The Pit. It was a sports stock market. And basically combined my love for sports with stocks. I got my two best friends uh, from from grammar school, like yeah. I said, you know, and to quit their jobs to go do it together. And it was like the most fun time. Learned so much about entrepreneurship. Um, learned what a cap table was. We're, we're in our first venture capital meeting. Uh, and we're just sort of like saying, here's the business and everything of that. And then, the, then I'll never forget the venture investor. I think his name was Tom Grant. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said, uh, so can you just walk me through the cap table? And we're looking at one another and we're going like, hey, Vinny, what? He said the cap table. I, like, I don't know, cap, wax. Do you know the cap table? I don't know the cap table. What's a cap table? And then we're like, 
Uh, maybe you guys should come back. Are, yeah, should come back when you know what a cap table is. So that was that was pretty funny. So you know, everyone starts from the bottom. You know, there's no you just you just learn. You get thrown in, throw yourself in, and learn. You know, trial and error. How much did you end up raising for that business? Ultimately, five million. Total. And it was only angels, no institution. We couldn't get any institutional because we yeah. didn't know what a cap table was. So, so it was just so friends, was, people you knew, it stuff was, like that. It was yeah. It was basically my boss at San Juan Bank put the first 50 in and said, go talk to these two people. And then every two people we talked to, we said, okay, whether you're interested or not interested, do you know two people? And it was literally like this tree we had built. And we talked to like 120 angel investors and we got had a good hit rate. We had about 60 uh, people wow. to invest on average. What is that? Like 80,000 each. Yeah. So it was like just clawing, you know, trying to raise that 5 million. Um, but then the market crashed. Yep. This is, this is when the NASDAQ in 2000 just got destroyed. Yep. Forget about, we couldn't raise venture before. We definitely weren't going to raise venture after. Um, and we were nine months in and we, the business was doing well, was getting some action. And uh, fortunately, the tops, the baseball card, bazooka gum manufacturer came in and said, hey, you know, we like what you guys are doing and we'll give you a 5.7 million for it. And we're like, We'll take it because <laughs> you know, there was literally the market was destroyed. And even our investors were like, wait, you're going to make money in this market. Yeah, take it. So, so you paid everyone back. Yeah, paid everyone back and uh, and then worked inside tops. And that's where we got the idea for diapers.com. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans. 
Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. How'd that idea come about? I was basically, I mean, I had a baby at the time, so it was pain in the ass going out for diapers all the time. Yeah. But the, the way it came together was I was literally in Google. They used to be able to like search to figure out how many times a search term was searched in Google. Yeah. And I remember typing the word diapers into the search engine and it said 200,000 times it was searched in the month. I'm like, wow, search 200,000 times. Nobody's buying diapers online. That's interesting. People want to buy them. They're not online. I certainly want to buy them online. I have this baby that's paying the ass going to like diapers every every few weeks. So I thought, well, let me see. Amazon. I mean, no, Amazon, they sell diapers, but they're like three times as expensive. Like nobody's buying diapers online. Why? Oh, they're a lost leader. You know, Walmart and Target, they sell them at a loss. Yeah. So now if you want to ship them, they're big and bulky. It's yeah, shipping yeah, yeah. and everything. So everyone's like discouraging. Like you can't make money. I was like, yeah, but why are they a lost leader in the store? I didn't know anything about retail. I was like, okay, they're a lost leader. Because it drives traffic and it drives moms to the store. Because they have to go get them anyway. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it's a loss leader. So why couldn't you be a loss leader online? Well, you're going to lose a lot more money. Yeah, but there's a much longer tail of products I can sell, mom, because there's unlimited shelf space online. And that was sort of like the breakthrough. It's like, okay, we're going to sell diapers. We're going to bring people in and we're going to sell them everything else. And we're going to lose money. The problem was the manufacturers wouldn't sell us diapers direct because they thought it wasn't going to work. So what do we do? We had to go to Costco or BJ's and buy the diapers from the wholesale club. So we'd literally go in, you know, sell the diapers for, let's say, $40 a box. Then we go into Costco and buy them for $40 a box and pay $10 to ship them. And we were funding this ourselves. So it was like, you do know, Mark, you're selling a dollar for 90 cents. And I said, no, we're actually selling a dollar for 80 cents, but that's okay. <laughs> but, but yes, the plan is we're going to sell these dollars for 80 cents. And then when we get enough people shopping, we're going to then sell them stuff that we actually make real money on. And it was painful in the beginning because we're literally like having to go to BJ's and buy these diapers and we stockpiling them. Did you have a warehouse? Uh, we, we buy them the day that they were sold because it was wow. But then it got to the point where we were selling like truckloads of diapers. So me and Vinny were going. Vinny Barrar is co-founder and and best friend. You know, we we go to we go to uh, BJ's and we have a deal. If we leave them some diapers, they will pack them on the eighteen wheeler in the back because they have the equipment and stuff. I'm like, okay, great, we'll leave you diapers. That's a great deal. Yeah. Okay, we still have to pay mine and stand online and go through and. It's like ridiculous, right? And they have all the the things and everything. Like with the cashier? Yeah, with the cashier. We couldn't like do it like be you know, like through like wire or anything. So you're a you're a diaper broker. Yeah. Basically a diaper broker. Yeah. And literally two years into it, Procter Gamble, Camille Clark still not selling us diapers. And we're like, we're selling $30 million of diapers a year. We can't keep doing this. We're like clearing out wholesale clubs. Like, we gotta figure this out. We gotta figure this out. How many people work for you at that time? Still really lean. Like Vinny and I were doing everything. It was probably wow. like, you know, 
Doing 30 million in diapers a year. Probably like six people. Crazy. Crazy. And buying them from the thing and shipping them. Or you going to like UPS stores and just like putting all these boxes in? Yeah, basically. Wow. Yeah. But put it labels. I could be out on the front lawn, these boxes, and you just put the labels on it and put it on the truck and bring it to FedEx and UPS. And Who built the website? Who built the platform for you? Um, yeah, we had a guy build it. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> You just designed it personally. You guys just said this. Yeah, we designed it. No firm. We designed the logo, you know, and just kind of stuff. Yeah, we did everything in the beginning. And but we couldn't keep this up. We're burning a lot of money now. We're burning a serious amount of money. We basically took it, funded it ourselves through the first eleven million. That was that was the first two years. Yeah, eleven million. And Procter Gamble, Kemmel Clark still wouldn't sell us the diapers. And it seemed like there was not even close to selling us. Crazy. And so we came up with this city like, oh, we got, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Okay, we need a reason for them to sell us. We need a reason. And we're like, you know what? What if we took all the diapers from BJ's and left nothing for their customers? Don't they have to? Don't they need diapers? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, but they're not going to load the truck. All right, well, let's let's go for it. So we went into BJ's and we talked to the man. And we said, hey, sorry, uh, you know this deal? It's off. We need them all. We're taking them all. And he's like, no, you, you can't take them all. like, well, there's nothing. We're going to buy all the diapers, right? This anybody could come in and buy the diapers. You can't stop somebody from buying them. And like, oh, you're right. We can't. But we're not loading the truck. So good luck. I'm like, oh shit, we're going to load this truck. This 18 wheeler, mean Vinny with like boxes. And like, it was just a war of wills. Like, who can last longer? You know, we we cleared them out. Customers are coming in complaining, right? And but we're like loading the truck. These diapers, I'm like, man, dude, I don't know how how long can we keep loading the truck. And we're like, I don't know. I think you're going to break, man. I, they have no diapers to their customers. They're going to have to like call Procter & Gamble. We're like, listen, you can solve this pain. Just call Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, and tell them to sell us diapers. Then yeah. you're good. You're off the hook. And like after like a few times of doing this, they did. Wow. Like we broke them. We were like sweating. We're like pounds. We're like, dude, I don't know how long we can do this for, <laughs> you know. But they broke first. They called Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble called us and said, hey, one of our big customers – um, asked us to sell you direct or a good client and we're going to do it. We don't believe in it. Nothing's changing how we feel about your business, but we will sell you direct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we kind of like, you know, got direct. And, and then we raised venture at 11 run rate and then we took it to 36 and then 90 and then yeah, 200. And it, it was like, a. and you started, started hiring back office people to run then it. Then we started hiring people to run it and everything. But the first 11 million was like, just a few employees like it was like hardly anything we're doing everything we're doing the accounting marketing web design customer care at that time it was just diapers it was diapers wipes and then we added formula at that time and that was pretty much it yeah this podcast is sponsored by ramp are you the decision maker in your company consider this For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. 
Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. How much in total did you end up raising before, before you exited? 50 million. That's it? That's it, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And you just use that for pure expansion, just for hiring and building. Hiring, marketing, yeah. And you sold in what year? We sold in 2011. And did the, the buyer come to you or was it something that you were thinking about, hey, it's time to, time to sell? 2011 was not like a great time. No, it wasn't a great time. And, and uh, so Amazon bought us. Yep. We actually had an offer from someone else for $100 million more, but oh. we took the Amazon offer. Why? Because Amazon was being pretty... They've been pretty tough. They cut the price of diapers 30%. They were prepared to burn a lot of money to put a dent in our business. Yeah. And they were they were pretty they were pretty tough. I'll just leave it at tough. Like yeah. they were tough. <laughs> but okay. uh the other acquirer that offered 100 million more, there was this one clause in the sort of agreement that said um as long as there's no adverse change in your business between like signing this and then like actually closing, we're good. Everything else, we're good. Ah. And we're like, but no adverse change. Like, do you realize Amazon's going to kick our ass? You realize that, right? Like, yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about that. I'm like, no, you're worried about it. Yeah, yeah. There's a clause here that says everything else is great. Just take out this one clause. We're done. And they wouldn't take the clause out. And so yeah. like talk to the board of directors and said, hey, like, I don't think they get it. Like, there's this clause here and we don't understand what they're trying to get at. Like, like they're going to kill us. And so, like, that's yeah, a good point. You know, 550 is not bad. <laughs> like, 550 is not bad. So we sold to Amazon. And I always, I always talk about this as like, we, people say, oh, man, this is your first big exit. Like, you made a ton of money. Like, you never need to work again. Yeah. You guys must have been so excited. We were literally depressed. Like, Vinny and I were just like, after the, after the close, we're like, do we get a beer and go celebrate? You want to? No, me no. Let's just yeah, let's just call it a day. <laughs> you know, it's like it was literally it was the most depressing day because we sold out because we sold, you weren't building anymore, right? We you weren't building anymore. And I I always talk about this. It's like the difference between selling your company and selling out. Selling's okay. Selling out's not. It's like you have a mission. Uh, you know what you stand for, a set of values. You have a vision of what you want to become and. If you sell the company and that stays intact, 
then you didn't sell out. It's actually you're accelerating. You know, you sure. you have more capital, you have more resources. You, you you can go after it with the help of the acquiring company, which is what happened with Walmart. We didn't sell out. We we sold it, sure, but we were still. You know, the vision of like creating, you know, a, a formidable competitor to Amazon, that was still alive and well. When we sold to Amazon, we're sort of like pushed in a corner. Uh, guys, just keep doing your thing. I'm like doing our thing, but you own us and you also have a diaper business. And what do you mean do our thing? Aren't we going to like join forces and let's go, you know, together? And I was like, no, just keep doing your thing over the side. And it was very like, oh. They bought you to take you out. Yeah, I was like, just watch it. Like, yeah, it was just terrible. We're competing with the owner. And it was just very, very not fun. Um, so, yeah, so I always talk about that as being like, yeah, we sold out. But most people would then like go to the beach, right? Well, yeah, I wasn't going to the beach. No. <laughs> so how'd you get the idea to build your second? company to build jet.com. Okay. That was like the fourth, but yeah, but the second big one, right? Yeah, the second, yeah sorry. Yeah. The second, second big, big one. one. Um, just inside Amazon for, you know, two and a half years, continue to build diapers.com. And we had a bunch of other sites like wag.com and yeah. soap.com, these other websites and things. And uh, it just felt like we had learned so much and still felt like there was a need for a formidable number two competitor. The market was growing fast. It was so big, e-commerce, and it was growing. And I felt like we can, you know, I, I use this acronym VCP, Vision Capital People. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's all it takes to create an incredible business. And we had the vision. Um, we thought we could get access to capital just given our track record. And we thought we could hire the best people in e-commerce in the world, again, given the track record. So it was kind of hard to pass up the opportunity because- um, You were primed and ready to go. Yeah, primed and ready to go. And that's what we did. We raised a ton of money up front. Um, just with the idea. So yeah, just, I mean, just the pitch deck. I think we raised 55 million with the pitch deck um, and we were able to hire an incredible team. And then we followed it up with another quickly 125 million pre-launch. So we had a lot of money. And uh, and we had a great team. And I always feel like with businesses, if you hire an incredible team and you're in the right size market at the right time, you're never going to lose because there will always be a strategic that's interested in that, right? Like, you know, like if, if there's a lot of big companies are like, wow, we need to be in this space. It's the right time. It's massive. Okay. We can't do it ourselves what's the best team in the world? Oh, look at jet.com. They've got the best e-commerce team in the world. Why? Because they have all this capital. They hired the best people. And so it's, 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 I always felt it was defensible. Some people are against, like, don't raise too much money early. You can burn it in the wrong ways and things like that. I've never been like a fan of that strategy. I, I would always say like, raise as much money as you can, as early as you can, and hire the best team in your industry. If it's a big enough market to support, it's got to be a big enough market, a biggest TAM, and it's got to be the right time. But if you literally hire the best people, that's what we did with Archer, the flying car company yeah. that uh, I invested in two years ago. Two founders came in, sat on the couch right upstairs and said, we have this vision for this flying car. Uh, it's basically like a, a, a drone that carries passengers and it's safer, faster, cheaper, all this stuff. Big vision. And I'm like, okay, that's the V. I get it. It's the right time. It's massive market, massive TAM, C and P. Well, the two founders are great. They're second time founders. They had a great exit, loved them, had all the values and traits that I admire. And I think it'd be really successful. It's about capital. So we needed to hire a great engineering team, the best in the world. And what they told me was, 
Mark, we need five million now. We're going. We'll go out and hire. We know where they are. We'll pull the best people from the best companies in the world. We'll have the best engineering team, and then we need to raise fifty million to build the very best um, flying car. And then once we have that, then we should be able to go out and raise a billion. And this was two years ago. And I said, okay, I totally get it. I'm going to put five million in here. I'm going to help you hire this great best in the class team. And then I'll kick off the $50 million round and help you raise 50. And then you're on your own and played out exactly that. Five million, hired the very best team in the world, raised 50 because we had the best team in the world. Now we're building the best aircraft in the world because we had the best team and all the learnings from everyone else before us. And they spacked and raised a billion all within two years. And now it's a $3.7 billion market cap company. And it started with a big vision and capital and this mentality of like, we're going to hire the very best. And I don't mean just good people. I mean, the very best in the world. And if they didn't raise that billion dollars, there's plenty of companies out there would say, wait, you only put 55 million in this company. You've got this incredible state of your plane and the very best team in the world. Yeah. So how do you find the best people in the world? I, I get hiring problems all the time, right? There's lots of, how do I even know that the person in front of me is the best? Are you just looking at competitors who already went through the, the process? And so you're just coming in and poaching? Certainly there's the best people tend to work at the best companies. So in the space. Sure. So, so that's, I think that's one. Existing companies are at a disadvantage in some ways because they can't offer the upside you can at a yeah. startup. So I think there's there's reason for people to leave, which is always great. Um, but also I've just I've also honed my resume reading skills tremendously over the years. I used to get burned all the time early. So many things I just didn't understand about like what things to look for in a resume. I think a lot of people that like look at a resume and see like I'm looking to hire a CFO. Okay, this person is a CFO and they're at this company. And he's like, okay, great. Uh, I'll interview them. And you talk to them like, oh, I really like this person. And in an hour interview, you're like, yeah, let's let's hire them because I like them. And you didn't really study the resume. You didn't do your due diligence. You sort of just, just saw that they're a CFO and you like them. And I call it honeypot. You get honeypotted. You know, you just like like the person because they're like you. You, you think, okay, this is a great person to go get a beer with and stuff but they're not a superstar. Most people aren't. If you say superstar, if you define it as top 10%, only one in 10 people are superstars. So how do you find the one in 10 every time? I think on the resume, if you are really um, focused on only uh, accepting a certain type of resume to interview, much less chance that you get you get burned or get honeypotted. And like I've now pretty good track record. If a resume qualifies as superstar, then I bring them in and I'll interview them for values and traits. Like what are the traits to make sure it's a good cultural fit, but I don't have to worry about whether or not they're superstar. A lot of times it's not even people that actually have the exact experience. Sometimes you have to sacrifice the experience, but I never sacrifice the superstar resume. And a superstar resume, there's a few qualities that jump out. Um, the most important of which is, um, did they show a demonstrable level of success in every job that they're in? Which may seem like, yeah, of course, of course. They, they, no, no. Like, look at the company, understand how many years are there and how many years, like, the top people in the companies would get promoted. Like, they're at Procter & Gamble and they're there for five years. Well, I know when you get in Procter & Gamble early, you should get promoted every two years. So if you don't have at least two promotions, 
that's a yellow flag. But if you're at Procter & Gamble five years and you have two promotions, great. Now you're leaving Procter & Gamble. And this is the most important part. When you leave a job, superstars see step changes in level, in comp, in company. Step change. If you don't see a step change, out. So, so somebody's like, you know, they, they start from their career and their associate, their senior associate, their manager, and then they leave and you're like, wow, director. Like that was a nice step up. It's a better company. And then they go director. And then two years later, senior director. I'm like, oh, I know that company. Two years at director to senior director. That's, they must really like this person, senior director. And then they're for two years and they're four years, five years while they like state the companies a while. They have these big moves and they're senior director. And I'm like, Okay, I'm not moving unless it's VP. Boom, VP, SVP. Like, wow, this person in, you know, call it 12 years has gone from, you know, graduate to SVP at a good company. I know that SVP in that company, that that's going to be one of the youngest people. Like that, that's a superstar. And I can show resumes to people and they'll say, yeah, yeah I totally get it. Yeah, that, that's a superstar. Okay, then just don't settle. Like, wait until you see a resume that has, and scream superstar, and then bring them in. Most people doesn't work like that. How many companies are, are you invested in right now? Yeah, Vision Capital People, there's probably six companies, four of which I'm co-founder, so really involved, two of which- And that's your day. You're working on those companies all day today. Yeah, I'm working on those companies. I'm working on the, the Timberwolves. Yeah. I'm working on- Congrats on that, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah. It, where, okay. where do you think e-commerce goes? from here. We're post-COVID, yeah. right? We're out of it. We're post-post, right? Everyone's vaccinated. COVID showed us a lot about what people can do from the home, from their computers. People are trying to bring physical products to the internet more than ever before, right? No one wants to go to stores, but they kind of do. Like, what do you, where do you think we are in, in 2030 from the guy that a lot of people think predicted the future anyway? Yeah, I think there's two with the early stages right now of what I think will be two big mega trends in retail. One is social commerce and the other is conversational commerce. Um, social commerce, we just announced that we just, A-Rod and I just invested in a company called Now With um, that connects, connects brands to influencers. I think there's a really big future on people buying products off social media platforms. So I think that that's, that's, a, that's a mega trend that's early stages. And the other one is conversational commerce. I think people will be using text and voice to basically converse things that they want to buy with someone who knows them as well as their best friend, who has the knowledge of the most uh, knowledgeable person in the showroom floor of a specialty retailer. Um, and I think search engines in 20 years are going to be something people will laugh about, you know, like the cassette tape. Like, so you needed to like go to a search engine, you typed type in what toaster and you got 10,000 responses and how did you know what to buy? And you had to read reviews and filter and search. And like, that seems tiring. It is, it is tiring. You, you should be able to just say to, you know, in a conversational way, hey, I want to buy a toaster. Oh, Ryan, yeah, of course. I know, I know what you would ideally want here. Let sure. me give you a couple options. And you're like, this one's great, but you have one in black. Yeah, great. Boom. I'll take the black one. Done. And then it's just done. Like there's no you just converse and and, and shop that way. You don't then, need to to this archaic, you know, search engine and do all this work and scroll through everything, especially on products that are more commoditized. Like I'm sure, you know, there'll still be some um clothing, apparel and things like that that you'll want to browse and discover, like discovery. But for the most part, most things you don't need discovery. You know, you just 
you just need some for anyone who's listening and i think um uh uh you've been awesome and taken a considerable amount of time with me today so this has been great um but like as a last little piece of uh, advice to people who are, you know, either out of work now or thinking about quitting their job or doing something they don't like, right? Kind of like where you were when you're in the bank. Great job. It's fine. And you're on that ledge of, hey, we can go and do something much, much better for myself. What, 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 what advice do you have for those people who are just too scared, too nervous? They have responsibilities. There's life. It's not going to work out. Like, it's one thing to say, yeah, but you never know. So just go try it. Yeah. yeah, I think I have a I have a unique advice here, and not everyone shares the same way of thinking. My advice is there's no halfway. Like you can't dip your toe in, do it on nights and weekends and things. Like that's the chances of it working is just so much lower. My thing is like jump. Like literally put yourself in a position where you cannot afford to fail. Some people do the opposite. They say, well, I can't do that because I can't afford to fail. Yeah, well, put yourself in the position that you can't afford to fail and you won't. Like you just won't let yourself. Um, and so it's uh, – there There are people capable of doing things that they don't even know are possible. I, I like to use the six-gear analogy where I think, you know, you're working in a bank. I was killing myself working 80 to 100 hours a week. People, lawyers and things, lots of professions working really hard. You're in fourth gear. And people are like, wait, fourth gear? No way, man. I'm on sixth gear. I'm like, I can't go any harder. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. When your life's not on the line, you're not going to get killed if you, if, 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 you know, if you get fired, you'll find another job. Like, you're not in sixth gear. When you actually jump and you quit and you have a family and you have to pay bills and you quit and you have a certain amount of money before it runs out and you have to make it work you wind up doing things that you didn't know you were capable of doing. Like literally, it's like, it's like if I told you, I mean, look at you're in good shape, but if I told you like, you need to like bike across the country in 30 days, you might say, no way, I can't do that. I'm like out of shape. That's like, you know, a hundred miles a day for 30 straight days. I can't do it. Okay. Gun to your head. I'll kill you if you don't do it. Suddenly, like, you yeah, do no, I'll yeah. do it, right? I'll do it. You know, <laughs> you might be like nearly dead when you get there, but you like in your mind, you think, no, I won't die. I'll, I'll figure it out. Like I'll somehow, some way I'll figure it out. That's kind of what happens with, with entrepreneurship. When you put yourself in that position, you go from, I can't to, oh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> like, like I'm not going to die. I'm going to figure it out. And, and it's just, there's a different thing that comes and takes over your body and your mind and enables you to focus in a way that just would be impossible if you had like one foot in so many people do that like kind of like try it or and they're like i don't know why this is not working like i'm um i'm like we have a full-time job (laughs) you gotta quit you gotta go you gotta jump big money energy is hosted by me ryan surhand it's produced by mike coscarelli and joe laresca and executive produced by Lindsay hoffman Find more podcasts like Big Money Energy on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? 
good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.